I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Farm Equipment. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Farm Equipment for sponsoring today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment in equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Weed control is a major focus and expense on many farms, and unfortunately, the prevailing methods of managing weeds, namely herbicides and tillage, have significant downsides, including soil degradation, increased weed seed germination, and increasing herbicide resistance. Roller crimping, mowing, and flame weeding are some other options, but are not widely used yet. So it's no wonder that weed control remains central to R&D initiatives in agriculture. For this No-Till Farmer podcast, we caught up with Paul Mikesell, founder and CEO of Carbon Robotics, a new company that's tackling weed control with a combination of artificial intelligence and lasers. This past year, in 2021, the company released its first production units of a machine called the Laser Weeder, which has the potential to eliminate the need for herbicides or tillage for weed control. Join in to hear about how the laser weeder can distinguish between crops and weeds, how it effectively kills weeds without chemicals, why grasses are more challenging to eliminate than broadleaf weeds, when the technology might be rolled out to row crop farmers, and more. My name is Paul Mikesell. I'm the founder and CEO of Carbon Robotics. We are building a laser weed control system so that provides no herbicides and also no tillage solution for controlling weeds in farm fields. We've been doing this for about three years now and had our first production units uh, this year. So we've been doing that for um, in production for about a year now. And then next year, we have a bunch of new stuff coming out and we're really pushing on deliveries for, for next year. Awesome. Okay. So why don't you just start with some of the specs of the laser weeder? Um, Just tell us, you know, the size and sort of what it does and all of that. Yeah, sure. So um, there's a lot of videos on the internet of this and we're, we're trying to add more stuff every day for, and for whatever people find interesting. Um, It is a uh, 80 inch wide machine that drives up and down the furrows of a farm on its own. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's all self-driving driven by vision system. And then uh, it has a, a row of very high-powered lasers that are targeted and controlled from cameras that are fed into our computer vision system for weed tracking and control. So our system knows what the difference is between a weed and a crop that you're trying to grow. And we kill these weeds. And these are 150-watt CO2 lasers. And there's eight of them across, the, across this row. Um, and so what happens is we kill these weeds with thermal energy, very targeted, and uh, we can get around the crops and, and kill weeds very close to your crops and um, not hit the plants you're trying to keep and destroy the ones that you are trying to get rid of. Um, and again, you know, I know that um, regenerative farming and no tillage is important to you and your, your listeners, and it's important to us also. We've learned a lot of things about 
um, no tillage, low tillage kind of systems. Water absorption is very important. So continually tilling the soil destroys the quality of water absorption. As the soil sort of settles, you'll get uh, better um, macrostructures in the soil, and then you'll get earthworms and things moving through the soil that create porous holes. And that's how the water is supposed to get in there to feed your crops. And if you keep tilling that up, it turns it into this dusty, finer matter that is easier to erode with wind and water, and it's less hospitable to your crops. So tillage is a is a system that um, you know has some benefits in, in certain areas, but certainly for continuous tillage and weed control, it seems to be pretty damaging. And so we're trying to come up with a better way to do that. Yeah. So I'm very curious. How did you personally get interested in this line of of work? Yeah, sure. Well, I got, um, I had been doing computer vision and robotics for uh, a lot of my career in tech. And after I got done with my, the last thing I was working on, I really wanted to do something more fundamental. And so food supply um, was an area that, you know, seemed to be sort of most important on the list of things. Um, You know, I've known uh, several people who've had uh, different various versions of autoimmune diseases that there's a lot of suspicion. Some of this stuff is coming from our herbicides and the way we're growing food. So that's kind of where a lot of this interest started from. And then I started meeting with a bunch of different farmers and learning about the struggles they're having with weed control and cost and labor, herbicide deployments, what happens to their land over time. And so it really seemed like there should be a better way. We hit upon the laser idea after doing a bunch of different experiments. And um, surprisingly, we were really actually surprised at how well the lasers worked. Um, Part of it is that these are, these CO2 lasers are 10.6 micron wavelength, which is far outside the visible light. So it's not something that a plant in nature would ever be exposed to. And so there's no adaptation to this uh, wavelength. It just looks like thermal energy, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it has very low reflectivity rate. So it, it almost all of it is, uh, is absorbed into the plant and destroys the plant cells that we target. So, you know, it was a combination of trying to figure out how we could help the food supply, trying to figure out how we could help farmers in discovering this very effective technique and then just really focusing on that. So talk about the CO2 laser portion of this a little bit more. Sure. What does that mean? And does it generate a lot of heat? You know, sort yeah. of what would a farmer be experiencing who's using this? Yeah, that's right. So these these laser tubes come from industrial cutting machines. We didn't invent the lasers, mm-hmm. um, which is part of the reason why it's cost effective. There's already a commodity supply of these parts. Sure. And so what they are is um, there's a, a power supply for each laser that generates a very, very high voltage supply. Um, And that essentially takes this three phase gas up three energy steps. And at the top of that produces a plasma that that lases. And then through the combination of all the reflectivity, the outside of the tube, um, the the, um, laser outputs a beam that is essentially just heat. Um, It's 10.6 micron, but so it's not something you'd ever see. Um, and it, we bounce it through a couple different mirrors, and that's how we control the targeting. And then the camera can see where the beam's going to hit and directs things through a series of servos that control the, the targeting system. So the lasers are really, um, you know, they come from another industry. They've been developed since the 50s. It's a pretty commonplace technology. Um, we do have to keep them cool. 
And so there's a recirculating uh, water loop that runs through a chiller inside the machine. And that's how we keep the lasers within their uh, cooling range. Um, if they get outside of that range, if they get too hot, for example, they'll stop lazing. It'll stop the, the reaction that needs to take place to produce this beam will stop. And so that's um, important to us. And it's all part of the machine. It keeps it uh, keeps it cool internally. So we, you know, we run these things in the desert and the heat and things like that. Um, we, we, so we did spend a lot of effort making sure that those things could remain cool out in the hot sun and mm -hmm. in these fields. And so tell me a little bit more about the sensors. I'm assuming obviously they're based on AI. So how did you train the system to ID weeds and tell them apart from the crops? Yeah, this is a, it's a similar technique to what happens in a lot of these social networks or, um, you know, uh, maybe more controversially, but like some of the security cameras that try and pick out who's showing up at your door or who's on the street, et cetera. It's a similar kind of technique. It's called deep learning or it's called neural networks. Um, it's, a, it's a branch of AI that works particularly well for a couple of different tasks and vision is, is one of them. Object detection within images coming from a camera. And so the com computer is doing a lot more in this, in this uh, AI uh, deep learning world than just trying to match colors or things like that. Um, it's using uh, all of this information is, is available on the, internet, on the internet about how these things work generally, but it's using all the context it can find to figure out what's a weed and what the crop. And what we do is we generate a bunch of images and label them about this is a crop and this is a weed and then feed them back into this process. And the process is called training, which is where just a computer is run for a long time to sort of refine its idea about what's, what's a crop and what's a weed in this, in this case, um, and produces a model. And those, that model we deploy to the robot. So it's really, um, it's a lot more complex of a vision structure than what has existed, um, for, you know, for uh, historically, this is, th this, this, um, sub branch of AI has really taken off in the last 10 years or so. So before 10 years ago, we wouldn't even have a technique like this. And so that's part of the reason why this is available now and why we're so accurate. We also have some of the best computer vision, deep learning people um, in, in the country working on this, folks that I've worked with before. Okay. And so we do have very, very targeted, very tailored um, computer vision system for this problem specifically. What is the accuracy rate? We are killing about uh, eighty-eight percent of the weeds, and um, and and then hitting about one percent of the of the crops. So there's a there's two measures you want to say is how many false positives do you have and how many false negatives do you have. Um, so we go really hard to try not to ever hit the crops and focus entirely on the weeds. Yeah, um, and that's about what the that's about what it looks like today, and we're continuing to refine that okay. through more deployments, more imagery. Um, that only gets better over time. Sure. Um, now, it looked to me like you've mostly been deploying this on things like lettuce, spinach, onions, things like that. Um, is there a plan or has this been rolled out in row crop environments, corn, soybean, that sort of thing? We've been, we've been really focusing on specialty crops. You're absolutely right. Spinach and, and onions and sweet potatoes and all, all that other kind of stuff. We have not done corn, wheat, and soy yet. That is the thing that we'll probably be experimenting with next year as we move more towards um, Midwest and doing some more work uh, in that area. We really um, have been focusing on a lot of these, um, especially crops, because there's a large organic market and, all, and the, the per acreage dollar value is, is 
so much higher that it seemed like a great place to start. Um, and also just sort of um, when I was thinking about what we wanted to focus on, you know, if you go to your grocery store or whatever, you know, the vegetables that you eat directly are to your, to your system, at least sort of more important than the stuff that gets, um, gets ground up. So corn, wheat, and soy always turns into something else. You don't just eat like a piece of wheat, but you do eat an onion, you know, directly. Right. And so, so in terms of quality in uh, overall human health, uh, it seemed like a lot more impactful place to start also. That's kind of how we got there. Yeah. And so this is really going to allow farmers to cut back on herbicides, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What sort of percentage cutback are you looking at at this point? Oh, well, with our system, I mean, you can just you can get rid of all of your herbicides if you want to. Some folks will do a, sort of a pre burn down before they plant or before the crops emerge. So kind of a pre emergent. Um, they'll either use, um, uh, you know, this technique called flaming where they use propane torches to physically burn this stuff or some kind of organic chemical like suppress to go out and just sort of kill everything before the plant before the crops come up. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, we'll, they'll bring us in once the crops start going and then, you know, no, no herbicides at that point, from that point on. Um, if you want to try to get rid of their herbicide program entirely, we can, we can handle the whole, the whole thing. You could bring us in before you plan if you want to. Um, that just has not been our cycle so far. Okay, gotcha. Is there a, like a crop size or height or development wise or something at which this is no longer effective or what is the tallest crop mm -hmm. it can get over that sort of thing yeah yeah we have a we have a three foot gap between the bed top and the and the bottom of our machine and that's designed so that it's designed it's designed for two things it's designed so that we can get the crops underneath the machine so like a mature onion will be we'll, we can still drive over the top of it we can be in an onion field up until harvest um we're also at that height so we get a lot more field of view from the laser uh, targeting systems and the cameras um, so, and it, but it's really crop dependent also. So for example, something like a carrot, which will grow quickly and shade in really fast to the point where the weeds below it aren't able to get sun. So they're not able to photosynthesize anymore. The carrots are essentially self protective once they get to a certain point. So our job in a crop like carrots, for example, would be to kill all the weeds in the early stages before the carrots start to shade in and then we'll move to another field after that. So we, we, will, we will follow carrots in sort of a planting rotation a lot more than we would in something like an onion field where we'd be in the same field and go in there multiple times through the whole course of the season. Oh, okay, I see. Um, and then is this laser weeder uh, as effective, say, against grasses as it is against broadleaves? Oh, that's a good question. Grasses are definitely harder. Uh -huh. um, and grasses are harder for two reasons. Part of it is because they have stolons underneath that shoot out sideways. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because they're less identifiable as separate entities than something like onions and things like that. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, grasses are definitely difficult. We're effective in grasses. You know, I, I would say that we have spent a lot more energy on making grasses uh, be killable than we have on, you know, some of these other lambs quarter and purslanes and things like that. Some of these other more uh, succulent or broadleaf weeds. Mm -hmm. um, so you're right. Grasses has definitely been a lot more work for us. Yeah. Well, and my understanding is you, your lasers are targeting the meristem portion of the plant, yeah. which sometimes is underground, isn't it? 
for most of the weeds that we see in these fields, it uh, it actually is on the it's on top. So something like okay. a, a, yeah, like a pigweed or lamb's quarter or, or you know purslane or um, yeah, all of this stuff. The the Mary stems are up, um, or they're either on top or they're near enough that we can get to it. Um, but for something like a grass, what we wind up doing is just keep shooting it every time it pops up, and eventually it takes care of it. Okay. So it's a little bit. It is a little bit more tricky with something like um, a nut sedge that will have multiple um, shoots that come up. And so in that case, we're really more about uh, weed management or continual weed knocking down mm -hmm. um, until the energy under the ground of the plant winds up exerting itself and we've killed all of its offshoots. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's why we're more of a, that's why we go in more continually, which is not a one and done kind of situation. You know, we're more um, field management. Okay. Yeah. How many times would a farmer deploy this machine during the growing season? Yeah. yeah several, several times. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll go in there and it is, it is, it is geography, you know, crop and, and weed dependent. Uh -huh. um, but we're, we'll, we'll go in there sort of continuously much like you would. And we've done, we've done these studies before where you compare us to um, like a hand crew, for example. And so one of the advantages of our machines is because we can get in there much earlier because um, our cameras are very sensitive. The lasers have very fine control. So we can kill these weeds much earlier than a human could even see them in the field. I see. So what that means is you want us to get in there early and we'll, we'll kill stuff before it even has a chance to really root, before it has a chance to steal nutrients or get the weed roots mixed in with your crop roots. So we get in there early. And if you and we've done a number of comparisons with us versus hand crews, and we just, the field looks so much nicer because you didn't have to pull these weeds out once they've grown to the point that somebody can see them. Sure. So, so we also will start earlier and we'll keep the fields cleaner longer because of that. We'll get back to Paul Mikesell in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for supporting today's episode. Yetter Farm Equipment has been providing farmers with solutions since 1930. Today, Yetter is your answer for finding the tools and equipment you need to face today's production agriculture demands. The Yetter lineup includes a wide range of planter attachments for different planting conditions, several equipment options for fertilizer placement, and products that meet harvest time challenges. Yetter delivers a return on investment and equipment that meets your needs and maximizes inputs. Visit them at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to our conversation with Paul Mikesell. And so basically you're zapping these weeds and they are just dying there in the field and they're returning their nutrients to the soil. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's okay. Right. That's, that's kind of the whole idea also is that the, that, that cycle kind of stays, right? Yeah. That the plant matter has been destroyed and the cells have been exploded. This process is generally called lysis, where you use energy to explode um, cells, living cells. But the nutrients are all still there. So if you do something like tillage, where you rip up a bunch of weeds, in a lot of these cases, what you've really done is spread these weed seeds all over the place. Mm -hmm. But a system like ours, what you've done, you've, you've killed the plant from growing, but all the nutrient is still there. So it's kind of all the good without the, without the bad. Yeah. Um, and then I read you've got three millimeter accuracy, which seems pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and it's ready to fire every, well, it's like 20 times per second, basically. Sure, yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and then just a couple of other mechanical or, you know, yeah. logistical things. So what sort of programming does the farmer have to do when they're going to deploy this? 
Um, our field team will come out and make sure that we have enough images of the right kind of crop and the right kind of soil content and things like that. After that, there's no real farmer programming. Um, we do have a, um, uh, for the autonomy driving around the field portion, we do have to outline the field itself in a geofence geo so that we know um, where to stay, where the safe area is. To, and then we have a turnaround zone that's kind of like an end zone that shows where the robot is safe to turn around. Um, but other than that, it drives up and down the fields completely on its own, and it knows where the furrows are using a similar computer vision technique to what we were using to identify these weeds. Okay. And so you don't have to mark out the rows. You don't have to, you know, geo mark the beginnings and ends of each of these rows. We figure all that out just with vision system. Okay. Yeah, I did see that, uh, that it's running on this deep furrow detection system rather than yeah. GPS. Right. Um, so I think, is that a common thing in vegetable farming? In, I don't I know that it is something. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen anybody else do it. Okay. Um, I think part of it is that we, we started with an excellent computer visions team from the beginning, and we knew it was going to be an important part of making this work properly. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of started there. And so from the beginning, the idea was how do we bring the best of AI and deep learning computer vision systems into the farms. And that was, that was kind of how we got here. So we're, we're very much focused on bringing this kind of technology into farming in a way where it's practical and has a great ROI, but doing things in a way where the farmer has a very low amount of energy they have to put into it. So this is an example of that where we auto find the furrows, we figure out how to drive up and down. Um, there's not a need to, for example, mark out all this stuff. Okay, gotcha. Um, and so, basically, when they set it up to go, it just goes. They don't have to. They don't have to steer it. There's no like iPad manipulation or anything like that. You just hit it and yeah. go. Yeah, I mean, we do have a little uh, joystick thing you can use, and that's usually used for trailering and untrailering and things of that nature. But once you you know get it to the field and tell it to go, it goes. Okay. What about if it encounters any kind of obstacles? What happens? Yeah, we have a we have a safety lidar system that if anything gets in the way of the machine, it will stop. We also use computer vision to keep track of that. Um, and because we do have forward facing and rear facing cameras, that's how we see the furrows also. Um, so if anything gets in the way of the lidar, it will stop. If anything shows up in the in the way of the front facing or rear facing cameras, it will stop. And then it also stays within its geofence. So it would already have to be something that was in the field environment. And it was like a truck or something of that nature, we would just stop. So in those scenarios, the, the, you get an alert and then somebody has to go look at it and figure out what's going on there. Okay, gotcha. And so I gather it runs about five miles an hour. You can do 15 to 20 acres per day, 75 gallon fuel capacity diesel. How long are you looking at it operating before you have to refuel? Gonna refuel it about once a day. Once a day, okay. In, in, in a twenty-hour day or so, you'll you'll fill the tank again. Yeah, and now is there any possibility that this could run on any other type of fuel or energy at some point? Yeah, I, we've talked about this quite a bit. If there was a way to get something that was all electric, um, you know, what would what would have to happen for that to work out and have a good ROI would be the need to make. Um, supercharging stations in the fields, for example. Um, because if you look at all the other electric equipment out there in the market, it's usually something like an eight hour runtime with a 10 to 12 hour charge time. And that's just simply not practical for these farms that need to get stuff done now. And so um, 
if we could get a system that was where the charge time was a smaller portion of the runtime, you know, that would be, and, and it could still be cost effective. Um, that would be great. Things are not at that point yet. And so that's why we're, that's why we're a diesel driven system. Right. Gotcha. Um, and so you're talking about ROI. Is this a machine that people are actually buying or is it a rental situation or what? Yeah, we sell, we sell machines. Mm -hmm. uh, we are starting to work with some partnerships for service providers in various areas for, um, but, but our business model is we sell these machines. Yeah. And we, we sell and we let the farmers capture the benefit of the automation and the better speed um, instead of, you know, managing ourselves and trying to do it as a service model. We just, prefer to just sell the machines. And it seems like the farmers that we spoke to, most of them would prefer to own them. So it works out better that way. And how much do they cost? I don't think we're announcing pricing oh. publicly yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. But presumably there's a cost reduction. I mean, yeah, um, yeah, compared that's right. to well, a chemical situation. Yeah. If you compare us and you say, how much am I saving on my weed control bills mm -hmm. um, just that cost difference alone the machine pays for itself between one and a half to three years okay and then do you have any data on yield increases as a result of using this yeah this is a good question we have a lot of anecdotal data we have a bunch of images of just better healthier looking crops we need to spend time next year really really sussing that out and getting getting better data. We have a lot of anecdotal data. We don't have enough yet to really have anything we want to publish. And so we need to focus on that. And so where are these being made? Uh, yeah, they're made, uh, all the ones we have to date have been made up here in Washington. Okay. Um, we're moving to a contract manufacturer or elsewhere in the United States. Um, so these are all US, US made products, but we're moving to a different, uh, a CM, a contract manufacturer to build these for us so we can get to higher volume. Okay. And, um, you know, everybody's having supply chain issues right now. Are you guys experiencing that as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anything in particular that you can share? Well, all of the electronic components and all of the hydraulic components are all back or, you know, back ordered by half a year or more. We've had to do some clever creative things to get parts and figure out how to get stuff off of other existing uh, materials and, and things like that. So we've had to be pretty creative to make sure that we got enough parts. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been really bad. Yeah. So what is your vision for this company and going forward? What, what do you see? Where do you see this going? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Carbon Robotics is really um, an agricultural AI company. Our, our real, our real um, skill set is around computer vision, AI, and, and uh, robotics. And so in the future, we'll be moving towards uh, more product lines to help farmers be more productive. And particularly as, you know, labor keeps going up and getting more and more difficult to find, you know, our solutions will be there to take over a lot of these manual tasks that are time intensive and really a machine could be, could be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess one final thing, um, I have seen a lot of uh, companies going toward more of a swarm model. I mean, this is a pretty big machine. So yeah. would you foresee perhaps having smaller models, just like a single row unit that could zip up and down the rows, or is that not um, efficient for some reason? 
it, it's not. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't make a smaller version. Um, in fact, we will probably make bigger versions, but we still will use a swarm model if you want to think about it that way, because we deploy multiple robots. So it's not like you'd put one of these things out there. You'd have multiple of them. Okay. And so that's really um, it's just simply at the scale that these farms are operating. A smaller machine um, wouldn't make sense. It, it's really um, we're kind of. You look at the you look at the machines on our website, and that's kind of about as small as we'd want to make, really, to get because you need to you need to get your acreage done, mm -hmm. um, and having you know having multiple ro robots is fine, but they need to be able to to cover enough acreage to amortize the cost for the build of the machine. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to pay for that engine, to pay for the computer inside, you know, all the frame and all that stuff, it needs to be big enough that you can amortize the the cost across getting enough acreage done. If we had smaller machines, then it would just simply be less. The ROI would be longer and harder, harder to justify. Sure. So what sort of uh, size farm are, is this really ideal for then? Yeah, this has been primarily, you know, 1,000 acres up. So I think our average farm is 4,000 acres. Hmm. Um, some folks are tens of thousands of acres, you know, high tens of thousands, 100,000 acres. Um, uh, and I think our, yeah, I think our smallest farm is probably... I don't know, 800, something like that. But, you know, it's it's not, this is not really useful for somebody who's doing, you know, 100, 120 acres or something like that. It really needs to be a larger scale farm before you would deploy something like this. Right. Gotcha. So probably that 1,000, 800, 2,000 is sort of the minimum that you'd be looking yeah. at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. think so. Yeah. Uh, and so a farm of that size might be able to get by with one machine, do you think? Or they'd still yeah, need you still have a couple at that size. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share that I didn't think to ask about? Yeah, I just wanted to hit on this, the tillage thing a little bit more. You know, the erosion thing that we talked about before is important. Some of the other issues we've seen with the, with the tillage stuff is that when you wind up tearing up this dirt over and over again, there's a bunch of um, microbacteria that's in the soil that's, whose job it is to affix nutrients, nitrogen, et cetera. And when you till that soil up, um, not only are you, are you disturbing that environment, which is there to help the plants get their nutrients, but you're taking that bacteria and throwing it up into the air. And that stuff gets on the leaves of your crops and will damage your crops. And so the, there are a number of reasons, you know, beyond just the health of the land uh, to try not to do so much tillage. And so, you know, that's, that, that, that has become more important to us over time. We didn't start off understanding how important that was. And we have learned that from the farmers. Yeah. And um, I guess one other thing, I would assume that that kind of directed heat could kill microbes in the soil if they're, uh, if they're hit, the good ones yeah. as well as the bad ones, because there sure. are good ones yeah. in there too. Um, yeah. But I'm assuming based on the accuracy, you're not seeing too much of that. Yeah, that's right. It's very localized. The, the heat that gets, um, you can actually, you can see if you go into one of our fields, um, you can see the size of the beam because the, uh, the plants themselves, the weeds have been shot. And in a lot of cases, the weeds are, um, uh, some of the beam will get past the, out, uh, the outer edges of the weed when it's small enough. And you'll see a little circle on the ground actually mm -hmm. where the laser is hit. And so it's a very localized, very focused area of the ground that we're that we're targeting for these weeds. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, from a, 
from a farmer's point of view, the this, the need to kill that particular weed would greatly outweigh any amount of very localized small bacteria destruction. Um, and whatever was in there was going to get hurt anyway if you came and pulled that weed out. Sure. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, this seems like a very exciting technology, quite honestly, because uh, you know so much better than herbicides, um, probably less dangerous than a flame weeder. <laughs> Did the weeds ever catch fire from the from the laser? No, this is, um, um, if, we were, if we were shooting weeds to the point that they were catching fire, we would be wasting energy. So there's, a, there's an efficiency reason why we don't, why, why we don't wanna shoot them that long. Um, so they don't catch fire. We shoot them enough that, they, that their cells explode and, and sometimes you'll see little flashes and stuff like that, but they're not, uh, this is not a fire creation. It's a lot more about cell explosion. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Paul Mikesell for this introduction to the laser weeder. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.